Hi everyone, this is Criterion Channel Surfing, and I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Just a quick note before we begin today's show. Apologies for getting these October episodes out so late in the month. Work obligations have had me putting in 12-hour days from home again, leaving little time, energy, or bandwidth for editing in my off hours. So the episode you're about to hear today is more lightly edited than usual. You'll hear all of our ums and uhs, our stammers and repetitions. But I'm really excited about all of the episodes I'm putting together from my October recording sessions. I have some really great guests, and the conversations were incredible. I hope you enjoyed listening half as much as I enjoyed speaking with John, Michael, Alana, and David. So, thanks for listening, everyone. And now, here's the show. You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection streaming video service, the Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. In these follow-up episodes, my guests and I offer a few recommendations for films that fit our theme and are available on other streaming services. John Lobinger of the Film Baby Film Podcast joins me to continue our conversation about the return of arthouse horror. But first, David Blakesley of the Criterion Reflections Podcast stops by to discuss the horror films of 1971 available on the Criterion channel. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, make sure to check out the Magic Lantern Podcast, hosted by Erica Long and Cole Rulane, exploring the films we love and the things we love about them. The Magic Lantern is a film podcast hosted by Erica Long and Cole Rulane, devoted to sharing their enduring cinematic memories. Join them for an ongoing, informal discussion of the classic and contemporary films they love and the things they love about them. If you've been looking for a podcast to explore old and new favorites with fellow film lovers, you've come to the right place. New episodes every other Monday. Find out more at magiclanternpodcast.com. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at criterioncast.com. I'm here with David Blakesley of the Criterion Reflections podcast. Uh, we're here to talk about some 71 horror films that are making their appearance on the Criterion channel. David, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. It's always good to talk with you. I know we've got more chats uh, scheduled up, uh, maybe not scheduled, but uh, anticipated in the near future. But it's always great to be on your show, Josh. So uh, thanks for uh, giving me an opportunity to voice a few opinions and observations on films from 1971. Yeah, definitely. You know, when you pitched this uh, to me, uh, just you know, uh, back when the the bundle was first announced, I just thought this is a really great opportunity and a really great idea. And uh, you you are cataloging so many films in your Criterion Reflections podcast, but, you know, I imagine it must get hard to keep up with films, especially when they're doing these big 70s uh, bundles, whether it's the 70s sci-fi bundle or the 70s horror bundle or the 70s style bundle. And, uh, you know, how how have you uh, approached some of those 
large 70s bundles that seem to throw off your chronology. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, years ago, back in, uh, was it 2009, I think was when I started this, I kind of committed myself to this trajectory of covering the entire Criterion collection in chronological order, you know, going back to Nanooka of the North, which is the oldest Criterion film at the time. Uh, and, And so I've kind of maintained this kind of mission, if you will. And so... Now here I am in 1971, season three of my podcast, and uh, and pretty diligently covering you know all the 1971 titles that have come up, whether that's been in physical media, streaming, whatever. And you know I will have to confess right now that I did actually actively skip over Black Beauty because that was a <laughs> <laughs> that was a Criterion Channel release of 1971. It's like you know it's beautiful film, nice family entertainment, one of those kind of Saturday matinee things. I says like, I just don't feel the need to make an episode about that particular film, you know? So I, I sort of just let it go. I'm already past that point in the timeline, et cetera. But then, you know, the October titles were announced and there were three 1971 films included in that. And then there's a fourth 1971 title, uh, the velvet vampire, which inexplicably was not part of that horror bundle but it's still a new offering on the Criterion channel. It seems like it should completely fit within that, you know, very broad category of 70s mm-hmm. horror, but it's not included. And so I, I'm still not exactly <laughs> sure what what the strategy is there, why it was not part of that, and 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 if it's part of some different bundle. Um, so I, but, but here, here's my dilemma, you know, like I've been kind of methodically going through all the films of 1971. So I've, I've included the sci-fi films, you know, Clockwork Orange, Omega Man, THX 1138, and kind of a, kind of a, a bundled episode of those three, because that was like a 30 day thing back in January, you know, back when, the, you know, we were just starting this new year. Little did we know that we were about to move into a post-apocalyptic scenario ourselves, <laughs> but here we are. Um, and 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 you know the widow Kuderk, uh with uh, Simon Signore and Alain Delon, uh, the dollars, the Anderson tapes, Shaft. I mean, these, these are a lot of short-lived runs on the Criterion Channel that I've managed to incorporate and make into either full episodes or maybe, you know, two films in a, in a, in a single discussion. And I, I definitely thank the guests, uh, Richard Doyle in particular, who have stepped yeah. up to help me kind of plug the gaps in as, as these new titles emerge into the, you know, the broader sense of the Criterion collection. Uh, but when I'm, you know, at this particular phase, I'm very close to the end of season three. You know, we did Macbeth, we did Harold and Maude, and then, oh, boom, here comes four new titles. <laughs> from I, can, I just cannot bring myself to go back and do individual episodes on each of these films. But uh, a little creative thinking and your very generous uh, willingness to kind of host this conversation uh, the Criterion Channel Surfing Podcast is kind of the perfect format for to me to do a little bit of a, well, I won't say a deep dive, but more like a surface skim <laughs> of, yeah. of, these, yeah. of these films. Uh, four titles from 1971 that I've given kind of, you know, one-time viewings to and, and thought through a little bit and, and did a little bit of research. So I'm not going to go into anywhere near the depth that I might uh, typical Criterion Reflections episode where I get into the director, the actors, the context, the history. I'll 
maybe touched lightly on those topics, but uh, this is my opportunity to say, okay, we're going to catalog these 1971 films, put them in the context of that particular year, and, uh, you know, have a conversation that hopefully is, is enlightening to listeners and, and fun for you and I as participants. So let's go. Great. Let's do it. Yeah, this is great. Now, uh, I have to confess that um, due to uh, work uh, ramping up, uh, I have not had a chance to catch any of these. So I'm coming at this just as a uh, help uh, to help facilitate the conversation and to uh, really just enjoy and and be kind of the the proxy for our listeners right now. And uh, I'm going to enjoy kind of bouncing some questions off of you as we we dive into this Uh, when you and I were talking offline yesterday uh, and beginning to plan this out, uh, you you gave some lovely descriptions of these films. Oh, sure. And yeah. uh, The Velvet Vampire, uh, you compared it a little, or you said that The Love Witch, um, mm-hmm. Anna Biller's film, must have been in, uh, inspired by this film. And uh, that sounds like a really intriguing connection there. I know I, I loved The Love Witch and I've loved the films of Anna Biller. Uh, and uh, that sounds like a really, uh, a really neat connection there. Well, well let's start there. Um, Stephanie Rothman is the director. She did a film called The Student Nurses from 1970, which I haven't viewed yet. So maybe there's a Stephanie Rothman bundle or something of that sort that's anticipated. But this is the one that's not part of the 70s horror package. And, and it is a, um, a very... Yeah, it's just, it's just a really intriguing and enticing um, example of a young woman who's got her own vision of making films that's been informed by horror, it's been informed by other kind of feminist sensibilities. Um, the Velvet Vampire is kind of a standalone picture here that incorporates a lot of the, the mythos of the vampire, you know, kind of legend if you will uh, you know people who live well beyond the normal human lifespan but retain their youth their beauty their seductive powers and and that's very much what we have going on here i believe celeste yarnall is the is the kind of um lead character here she's she's a woman who lives out in the desert uh she is able to be out in the sunshine. She is able to be out in this kind of, you know, hot climate, but as is the case of many vampire movies, she kind of preys upon this attractive young couple and lures them into her, into her lair and, and takes advantage of that. So the velvet vampire has all of these kind of stylistic, uh, affectations that are very appealing as kind of eye candy. Um, there's, there's kind of this loopy lunacy to it all, but, but, but also kind of a determination that is, is very intriguing as, as you see this kind of very methodical thought out process of seduction kind of unfold over the course of the film. Uh, the, the two, people that the you know young man and young woman this couple that that she identifies as her next victims are kind of almost archetypal uh, caricatures in a sense of kind of young wandering hippie types who get caught up in something way beyond what their capacity to handle <laughs> and it is it's 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 very entertaining and and very 
yeah, it just it 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 makes a pretty stark and and dramatic impression, and and one that I feel is is very uh, worthy of of recognition and and celebration because it's yeah yeah I, I I guess I'll just say it's it's a very pleasant hour and a half of of entertainment of of diversion that sort of lays the seeds for you know future works such as um the love witch and and other things that yeah anna biller has put together she, she really seems to have taken a lot of cues from that updated the, the sensibility made it even a little bit more um proactively feminist but there's there's a pretty strong feminist aspect here as well so yeah i you know it's a great way to start the conversation well, that's great. As you uh, mentioned, Stephanie Rothman, uh, it just reminded me that uh, this actually is part of a bundle along with the student nurses mm-hmm. that will be uh, uh, on the the channel. So um, it hasn't really had that feature moment yet. Or yeah, like on the front page or whatever. It'll, it's coming up. Okay. Yeah, and and so later this uh, later this month, they're going to have a bundle that is uh, women filmmakers of New World Pictures, mm-hmm. and so it's really highlighting films. And there are a lot of these that are horror films that are kind of exploitation films, uh, but. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. That uh, I, I love the way you describe this, and uh, this is one that, uh, as as you're talking about it, I am definitely uh, gets me eager to check it out. I think Anna Biller's work has uh, I, I found so invigorating as I was watching it while her work was on the channel, and um, just to see some of those roots, I think will be really fun to to check out. Yeah, there's some really entertaining dream sequences and kind of visionary, hallucinatory type of uh, moments in the film, and and this yeah, you just kind of get into this kind of elevated headspace here. So you know, she's she's a young director who's really taking uh, enormous chances, but but I think she pulls it off, and I think that's that's pretty commendable. Uh, so certainly one I, I would like to recommend. It's probably one of my you know, on a purely aesthetic level, my favorite of the four. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That's really interesting. That's really great. Uh, what's the, the next one or the next one in the chronology maybe, uh, of, yeah. Of films? Okay. Daughters of darkness is the next one released in May of 1971. This is a film that stars Delphine Seyrig. Uh, she's probably best known for kind of two films kind of at the, you know, pivotal beginning and ending of her career. She, um, you know, she's she was in last year at Marienbad, mm-hmm. and then she's of course very well known for her performance as Jean Dielman in uh, Chantal Ackerman's pretty epic film Jean Dielman with the address there that I yes, haven't memorized. Yes. <laughs> and so, um, but but in between those two, you know, kind of very very significant uh, performances, she did a lot of other stuff. She worked with Luis Bunuel. She worked with, uh, well, she was in Mr. Freedom. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and she did a lot of very, int- I mean, she, she was kind of maybe even almost typecast in the role of a very glamorous seductress. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an actress, I think she was very adventurous and very willing to go into 
dark and twisted and subversive territories. And that's certainly where she's at here in daughters of darkness. She, again, very much like the velvet vampire. In fact, you could almost, uh, you know, interchange the titles of these two films. She also is a centuries old vampire who finds an attractive young couple to prey upon. And it's got a very strong Euro feel kind of a Gothic, slightly decadent um, atmosphere here. Uh, She's, um, they're holed up in a hotel. I, I don't know if it's in Venice or somewhere in Italy, but it's kind of a, you know, kind of old world, old money, uh, kind of the afterglow of kind of faded aristocracy. She's got this young, uh, protege, this, this woman, uh, with dark hair, but it's, <laughs> it's another very powerful, um, depiction, uh, with a very sexy, uh, kind of through line here of the vampire motifs, you know, it, it again, pretty pretty visually dazzling at times, and probably a little bit more uh, grim in terms of some of the overall depictions of violence and, and and all that. But you know, it gets into this kind of hypnotic, you know, kind of head trip type of approach because the attractive young couple, you you sense within them a lot more. Uh, self-deception and secretiveness from each other. You know, you get some of that in the Velvet Vampire, but the couple sort of at the heart of Daughters of Darkness is even more uh, replete with internalized conflicts and a lack of genuineness with each other as a couple. Each of them are keeping secrets, and and, uh, there's a lot of exploitation of that by the Delphine Seyrig character. So, again, it's just another kind of, take or twist on on the vampiric motifs here um but with lots of heady atmosphere Mm. um maybe i don't know there's there are some things that are successful some things that maybe are not but uh you know that's that's kind of my pretty breezy surface quick take on Hmm. that i i really love delphine sedrig she's uh she just seems like a, a a pretty beautiful presence and anything that she's in automatically heightens my interest and i think she pulls off her part of it very very impressively yeah yeah this one uh seems really really compelling as well i mean again the as you're looking at some of these early 71 films Mm -hmm. they're some of the earlier films in the bundles it's before we get into some of the the grittier films yeah, and, there. Yeah, and and there are some things where you think, well, you know, they could have taken it a little bit further with some of the explicitness, some of the eroticism. Uh, you know, it's not like it's lacking in any of those things, but it's it's mm-hmm. much more implied than yeah. than right up front there on the screen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's next then? Uh, after we've we've moved from two vampire films, there. Well, let's yeah, let's keep scrolling down here. Yeah. Um, Let's Scare Jessica to Death was an August of 1971 release. Mm. This is the one that I, I think I see linked up with sort of following up on Night of the Living Dead as kind of a proto-indie mm. American horror experiment. Uh, it's about a young woman who's with her husband and kind of a mutual friend. They 
they're kind of doing the post hippie post Woodstock thing, going mm-hmm. down to the country, kind of finding an old kind of country estate, going to live off the land, get back to nature, and kind of clean up their act, which I think kind of connects with some of those tropes of okay, we've had our madness, we've had our kind of you know going out on the psychedelic limbs and the wildness and the craziness, and let's just kind of move beyond all of that and and get back to nature and and jessica the the woman in the title of the film she's also been uh kind of the subject of a kind of a mental breakdown she spent some time at a psychiatric institution hearing voices seeing things that aren't really there just kind of losing it a little bit and again whether that's you know the the full-blown uh, hospitalization route or just people mm-hmm. who've sort of been out there on the on the wild ragged edge and need to kind of ground themselves in reality again that, that's probably an experience a lot of people were, were able to relate to at that time in in our yeah. culture and so she uh, she you know they, they make their way to this pretty you know nice little cozy country estate it's kind of a, a big old farmhouse out in the out in the woods somewhere but she continues to have these moments where she's hearing voices seeing things and she's just not really sure if it's all happening again or maybe there really is something else going on uh, this is a film that I think has a lot of support a lot of a lot of admiration and I, it does do a good job of of establishing kind of those creepy bona fides of kind of the dread and and not really sure what's real what's not it kind of puts you into that mindset of just doubting your own senses because mm. they're not fully trustworthy and the character of Jessica herself is is pretty sympathetic because she's obviously a woman who's been going through a pretty hard time um, she's likable, you know, she's, she's vulnerable. She's, she's just really wanting to live a sincere real life. And, and yet the people around her, you know, even, including her husband, the friend, uh, and some of the, the locals in this little you know, rustic community that they've settled into, I think it seems like it's maybe upstate New York or something like that, uh, or somewhere in new England. Um, they they take a very skeptical view of her and, and even kind of manipulative. So you, you get a sense of this this underdog, this woman who's being really kind of, you know, played with, toyed with mercilessly by a bunch of people who don't necessarily have her interests at heart. And so, yeah, so the, the palpable sense of paranoia and alienation is, is very powerful. The, the film sort of breaks down for me a little bit towards the end because some of the conclusions i know there's you know there's a point of ambiguity and not explaining everything but there's there's sometimes where you overreach and some Mm -hmm. of the some of the actions that are taken ultimately just don't make any sense whatsoever (laughs) so (laughs) again this is based on a one time let's check it out and see what happens but you know I, i will say this the the sense of dread and paranoia that i've already referred to is so strong that you know, I, I figured I could watch this one with my wife. Now she's not a, a big fan of you know grime and horror, body yeah. mutilation, all of that type of thing. And I honestly, I'm not one of these people who like clears my calendar to you know divulge deeply in horror every October. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I I appreciate it. I respect it as a genre, and I know it, it is a, to- a total jam for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But that's not necessarily my thing. But I thought this might be the one that Julie, my, you know, my wife, could could get into. But it was too much for her. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know, I, I think there's a lot of strengths here. There's definitely some very interesting stuff going on. Mm. And again, I, I can certainly recommend this uh, as as very worthy of checking out. But I may not be as big of a fan as some of the other you know, reviews I've read online. 
Yeah, I know that uh, Magic Lantern cast did an episode on this one and uh, really highly recommended it. And it yeah, it I would love seem... to listen to that just to kind yeah. of hear their take and get a little bit more insight and nuance to it. Yeah, so I'm I'm this is one that has when the seventies horror bundle popped up, it did kind of my my ears pricked up a little bit when I saw this was gonna be there, uh just based on the the, the appearance in their last year's Halloween uh stretch of films. But yeah, this is uh this is this uh, a, a stretch of films that find I find really fascinating, and this last one sounds really intriguing as well, especially sure. with yeah. all of the discussion of Turn of the Screw uh, yeah. happening with the the latest Netflix series and everything. Yeah, yeah. So the Nightcomers, a nineteen seventy one film from Michael Winner. Let me see if I can get a date on that. That's uh, that's also late August, just a few days after Let's Scare Jessica mm. to Death. The Nightcomers was released. It's a prequel of sorts to the turn of the screw or the innocence uh, by jack clayton which i did an episode with maybe a year or two ago as a criterion mm-hmm. cast main episode uh, trevor and i and probably we had at least one or two other guests i that escapes me at the moment but but i did really enjoy that um mm-hmm. the Nightcomers not quite as successful <laughs> i mean it's it's got its moments it's got its absolutely you know commendable aspects to it i would probably have to put this as number four if i have to rank the four this is probably mm-hmm. the, the last place entry um but it's certainly not without its its uh appeal i mean marlon brando is the big name here mm-hmm. uh, this is the role that i believe he performed right before he went into the godfather with francis ford coppola so if you want to see what uh, Brando was doing between Burn uh, with Pontecorvo and mm. uh, The Godfather, this is it. <laughs> and uh, his performance is fascinating because it's Brando, and it's yeah. always interesting to see what he does. Um, but there's there's some drawbacks. He he affects this lilting Irish accent. He sounds a little bit leprechaunish or like the old Irish Spring uh, soap <laughs> advertisements. He's capable, but it's just like you're just so aware. This is Marlon Brando, you know, talking Irish that it's just kind of like come on. <laughs> um, and he also plays the part of this kind of sort of lowly you know, wretched servant guy. I mean, the, the, the whole conceit of the story is that it's this isolated uh, British estate. The, the, the Lord of the Manor is this very wealthy, um, you know, businessman, semi-aristocrat who is, is typically away from the place as he goes about his worldly affairs. But he's got these two children and he's got his servant staff. So we've got kind of the groundskeeper, which is the Brando character. There's a young governess, a, a young woman. And then there's kind of an older kind of made housekeeper who kind of keeps a watchful eye on everything. And of course, with Brando and the young governess, there's this sexual dynamic that develops. And I will say this, uh, the the sex and violence aspect is kind of shocking because mm. you know it, it's it's a film that's involving younger children who end up imitating some of the depravities that they witness kind of furtively they're they're hiding in the shadows as they kind of get the sense that something unwholesome is going on here and uh yeah and, and in that sense and i don't even get give, get into spoilers but you know you watch it just going in uh, there are some pretty shocking moments here just because I didn't quite see that coming, you know? Um, So maybe to preserve that dynamic, I won't say more about it there, but you know, there it is. The, the, um, 
the other thing too is that it, it's shot in color, so you don't have some of that creepy, ghostly atmospherics that you yeah. have in the Innocence. And I think the the direction by Michael Winner is pretty heavy-handed. I mean, you know, there's times when you know when you have the children kind of leering into the camera or kind of showing that sort of spooky, creepy side of of the slightly disturbed youthful persona. And it, it can be very effective and chilling. And sometimes it's like you overdo it and it's like, eh, you know, you, you just keep going there. Yeah. And, and the tonal shifts are just not really consistently managed. It's like, say, sometimes overplayed and, and the, it just goes back and forth. And so, so those are some of the drawbacks. I mean, if you're a big fan of the Henry James story or the Innocence or Brando or just kind of, um, you know, where kind of British horror was at at that time. Um, it, it, again, I, I can certainly say worth checking out, but, um, you know, don't, don't be expect to be completely bowled over there. There it's, this is a mixed bag. Yeah. I, you know, I've never really, I've never really thought of Michael winner as, uh, uh, anything other than a heavy handed director from right. what I've, what I've heard. So yeah, that doesn't surprise me that the film would be incredibly kind of over the top and, uh, maybe a little, a little much at times. Well, and, and the other issue with, with prequels is that, you know, sometimes they, they, they perform some fan service by saying, here's how we got to the point of, the classic. I mean, you think about yeah. the Star Wars prequels. Well, you you know, you have the setup, you've got all this implied backstory, but when you do a prequel, now you're declaring how we got here in the first place. And so some of the intrigue and some of the mystery is kind of spoiled because now you've kind of given a definitive telling of what happened to put our protagonists in that particular situation or state of mind. And that's kind of what happens here, you know. Uh, again, I'll avoid the spoilers, but you know, the innocence part of its effectiveness is just, wow, what happened to get this whole situation set up and, and these mm. kids as off balance as the, as they are. Well, once you sort of spell it all out there, it just, it just depletes some of that mystery and some of that speculative, uh, stuff that fires the imagination. So, you know, prequels, you know, are, are, by, by their very nature, kind of hazardous because they they give an explanation or definitive answers to to questions that might be better kept open ended. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As you were watching these films, what are some things that um, that stood out to you in uh, how they maybe fit into this this mosaic or this? Uh, this tapestry of 1971 that you've been viewing over the last few years? I, I think, you know, to me, probably the, the most encouraging or heartening aspect has just been kind of the, you, you see the emergence of an independent cinema. I mean, mm -hmm. as I've made many references to over the course of, you know, the episodes of my 1971 coverage, this was just a, an era where studios in general were not really sure what the future held you know what's mm -hmm. what's the next phase for not just hollywood but but for you know commercial movie making in general what's going to pull audiences in what can we show them on the big screen that they can't see on tv and so you see you know a, a little bit of expansion of artistic license in terms of what you can put on screen how explicit you can get how you know you know, raw, psychologically disturbing, I, you know, obviously I think those are the the aspects that stand out to me as just kind of the, 
mental and emotional unbalance that so many of our characters are going through here, you, you get into some darker territory in terms of the human psyche and what people, how people respond to extremely stressful situations. So whether that's in terms of mental health or physical danger, um, erotic attraction or the repression thereof, th those are kind of the the underlying issues that are at stake in each of these films mm -hmm. and the, the, the directors, um, none, uh, Michael Winner is probably the most commercial of the bunch. Uh, but they're all people who are saying, let's, let's see what we can do to advance the boundaries and, and, and take advantage of some of the new opportunities as studios maybe are taking a little bit more risks because, you know, they realize they have to, they have to allow some of that if they're going to even have a chance of, of scoring with a receptive audience. So to me, I think, you know, again, as I'm not per se like a horror genre fan, but I do see that there's creative work being done here. There's innovation, there's experimentation, there's reaching for, you know, something new and, and something different. And, and that's what I love so much about so many of these films from, from this early seventies era. And that's certainly going to continue as we get into the films of 72. Um, there's a lot of turbulence here and, and you see a lot of mm. creative friction and, and, uh, you know, sometimes the experiments work. Sometimes it's like, eh, they fall a little bit flat. But, you know, I respect the effort anyway. So, yeah, I guess that's kind of putting them into context. And, and I, I guess in that sense, going back to the 71 sci-fi bundle that we talked about, you know, at the beginning of this year. Yeah. Uh, yeah you got people reaching in, in different directions. And, and, yeah, again, you, you just have a lot of admiration for people who are willing to get out on the tightrope and, you know, sink or swim. That's awesome. That's great. <laughs> thank you so much for yeah. for doing this, this is, yeah i think this is great yeah and uh as we were talking a little bit before i started recording uh i really want to extend an ongoing invitation to you to continue to uh come on and uh use use this podcast as a way to catch up on channel titles from your chronology that, that you don't have the time to dedicate an entire episode to. I think this is a great, a great use of, of the space. Yeah. Oh, no, I, and I fully agree. I mean, you know, without necessarily trying to disrespect any of these films, I, I feel like I made the right choice by not dedicating full individual episodes. And this, you know, in a sense is kind of a compendium episode, sort of like what we did with the sci-fi bundle, yeah. but I definitely appreciate the invitation. I think it's a great place to talk about what's kind of happening on the channel now and, 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 uh, you know, kind of these short term yeah. limited releases. And there are a number of them, uh, that are scheduled for 72 and I'm sure criterion will continue to release titles from this era <laughs> as we get into season four of my, of my own podcast. And of course, it's always a delight uh, talking with you, whether I'm hosting or you are, it's very, Right. great time to, to have the conversation and, and get into these films so thanks for the invitation i will definitely be taking you up on that great well thank you so much this has been great uh, where can people find you online yeah well my stuff is all hosted on criteriancast.com uh, did an episode recently about the war room uh the 1992 documentary about the election campaign of that year, uh, specifically uh, Bill Clinton's efforts with George Stephanopoulos and James Carville. Did that with Jordan, Scott, and Arik, kind of our main episodes thing. Mm -hmm. Just just coming off a recording session this morning with Aaron West and Trevor Barrett on the next episode of Criterion Now. So that'll be talking about the January 2021 releases and a few other things that we've been up to. Uh, and then you and I and some others are going to be talking about the short films of 71 uh, in 
my final episode of season three for the Criterion Reflections as we kind of uh, turn our attention towards that. And then Trevor and I are talking about another episode of Inside the Box coming up. And uh, yeah, we'll be doing that probably sometime in November as I'm kind of queuing up my weekends over the next (laughs) next several there. Uh, So yeah, I I plan to keep at it. And then of course, December, I I imagine you'll probably have a voice in in all of our year-end episodes as we look at uh, the year 2020 and what Criterion had to offer and and all the other things that we might want to look back on as uh, as we reflect on the year that we've lived through. That's great. That's fantastic. Well, we'll be right back with more Criterion Channel Surfing as John and I discuss art house titles that are available on other streaming services. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, make sure to check out Good Times, Great Movies, hosted by Doug McCambridge and Jamie Lorello a podcast about the best, but usually the worst, of 80s cinema. Every other Friday, Doug and Jamie discuss a film from the 80s. Some are films they haven't seen since they were kids and offer a contemporary perspective. Others are films they've never seen before but probably should have. Do they hold up? Are they classics? Or would these films just be better off having been lost to time? Find out more at goodtimesgreatmovies.com. I'm here once again with John Lobinger of the Film Baby Film Podcast. John, thank you so much for continuing our conversation as we move into some other horror titles. This is going to be fun. Of course, yeah. I love talking to you. We went so long without chatting, and now I feel like I've had to. I've gotten the opportunity to chat with you on several occasions. This is. Uh, I know. Let's just keep this thing going. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, for these follow-up episodes, we're going to talk about a few films on streaming services other than the Criterion channel that fit into the month's theme. John and I already talked about horror titles that are currently streaming on the Criterion channel, so today we're going to talk about a few other films that fit the theme that are currently on other streaming services. So, John, I'm, you know, we've we talked last time about or last year about some of the other streaming services that you use but i'm just curious has that changed at all what are some of the ones that you're currently using uh what are ones that really rise to the surface for you when you think about the streaming services that you use so um i'm you know criterion criterion channel ride or die uh i was a founding member yeah, i was yeah. i was i loved filmstruck um, even before criterion channel so that's definitely my number one my brother got me a subscription to Mubi. And that has mm, been mm-hmm. just a really terrific adventure. I plan on, I think Criterion Channel or, and Mubi are the two services that are like must have services for yeah. our, our film circles for sure. But then, so uh, I, I have Amazon Prime. Amazon has a wonderful collection of movies, particularly in the genre that we're about to talk about, which is Italian horror and giallo. It's definitely one of their strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have Netflix. Uh, the fiance loves the Netflix rom-coms and, you know, all the ridiculous shows they have on there and stuff like that. So I have access to that. But, I, you know, I have a problem, man. I just have too many streaming services. I also have HBO, Disney+, Plus, um, Shudder, and I even just started um, Free Month of Arrow, which I don't think I'm going to continue. I think uh, it's a yeah. little bit redundant at this point. But the Arrow film, the Arrow physical collection has a wonderful library, um, but they're 
online service just really isn't up to par with their their physical offerings. So that may change, but um, for now, uh, I think I think I'm gonna be I'm gonna be culling I'm gonna be culling my some of my streaming services soon. Now that yeah. you've made me speak out loud, <laughs> just how ridiculous the number of services I have is. Yeah, I debated on the era when I was uh, kind of looking at stuff for my my virtual film festival back in May. I was looking at the arrow selections and I, but I felt like so many of the titles were available on other streaming services too. And I just, I couldn't quite bring myself to, to sign up for it. Yeah, no, it's part of it is that so many of the titles they have on there are available on Amazon. They're available on shutter. They're available now with the seventies collection on the criterion channel. So there just isn't a whole lot to draw me into Arrow right now. And I think they're really leading off with their horror collection. And like I said, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's redundant at this point for the most part. It's very clear that Arrow has a lot more to offer than just that. And I'm not sure if that's just something they're going to, you know, they're going to upload more of their, their catalog as time goes by. But right now it's uh, slim pickings. Yeah. Uh, I do have to echo Mubi is, uh, pretty fantastic i think that especially with the addition of their movie library and the fact that that's now available on all of their apps uh, i think that has been such an incredible addition and uh, uh, the fact that they have now added some really great premieres to that uh, getting to see the new Werner herzog film uh, with a a Q&A with Werner herzog afterwards i mean there were just some, some there have been some really great great releases on movie that i can't speak highly enough of yeah absolutely absolutely and there was one collection i think it was the kawashima collection that mm-hmm. so many of those movies were not available elsewhere and this is like some of the best japanese film of all time and i it was it was like yeah it was like a an endless feast it would you know i i've been my brother did a great job getting me christmas present when he got me movie it's uh, i've been celebrating it all year well that's great that's great well let's dive into some horror films on other streaming services i i think uh our horror films are all on the same streaming service <laughs> uh but uh what's the first film you're going to talk about today yeah look it, it shutter isn't the only streaming service with great horror collections i think uh we've already we discussed last year amazon prime is genuinely impressive netflix certainly has plenty of horror films both classics and some really really bad ones uh movie has a small collection of classic and international horror but respectable but i think shutter yeah, Shudder just has a lot, and it has a, it had several films that were just perfect for what I'm looking for now. I'm looking for horror comfort food. I'm not looking to be mm. challenged with the horror films that I watch right now. I'm not looking for something that's new and innovative or particularly horrifying. Like I'm not going exploring, you know, more of the the French New Extreme or or things like that. I want. I want the stuff I grew up with, essentially. The world is horrifying enough. I do want some catharsis, and I do want to, you know, horror film is very much comfort food for me. Um, It's, you know, I was one of those kids that was 
damaged by watching horror films at my friend's house way too young, but then grew to absolutely love it. And this is like, this is my go-to. And so what I've been doing this October is I've really been focusing on uh, genres that, like I said, feel really like safe to me and sort of uh, stuff that I'd explored. And Italian horror and Italian giallo has really risen to the top for me. Hmm. One movie that I watched that basically blew my doors off was uh, Zombie by Fulci. Um, 1979 film. It's available on Shutter. The naming is a little confusing because it's like Zombie. It's known as Zombie 2, Zombie Flesh Eaters, whatever. However you can find the film, whatever title it's under on the service that you're looking at, this movie was a revelation in part because I thought I hated Fulci horror films. I had seen mm. The Beyond. I'd seen House by the Cemetery. And both of them just, I didn't get it. I essentially thought they were laughable. I watched Zombie because a lot of people really like it. And because, like I said, I wanted sort of comfort food. I wanted to go back to a genre and an age and like a film type that I was really comfortable with. And I sort of thought I knew I was what I was getting. And so I went and saw Zombie. I, you know, it was it's a fantastic film, fantastic music, mm. out of this world practical effects, practical effects that really remind us how bad CGI is, fantastic cinematography, you know. At the same time, it's a movie that definitely has the flaws that you expect from Italian horror and giallo from the sixties, seventies, eighties. You know, the bad dubbing. Uh, if you if you're a film lover that needs logic in a movie, just stay at home. Mm-hmm. Like this is not gonna this is not for you. And if plot holes bother you or bad editing bothers you, like again, just stay at home. But if you can get it, you know if that if you can get past that stuff or that stuff isn't you know you know what you're expecting when you see an Italian horror film. This is kind of the best of what you can expect from this. Um, mm. You know, including the fact. It's clearly ripping off and derivative of many films that were hits at that time. And it just pulls it off with such a plomb. I, I mm. you know, it, it's just what the Italians did, but better. I think this movie has way more to celebrate than it does to scoff at, even though if you really wanted to pin it down, you could certainly laugh at plenty of it. But really, for me, this redeemed in a lot of ways, like Italian horror films after, after Suspiria. It just... It makes me want to go and revisit some of those movies that I didn't like as much and and to continue Mm. exploring what for me now feels like a really rich area of horror that just makes me feel it just makes me feel at home watching this stuff. It's so good. And the music. Oh, music in this movie is wonderful. I cannot look all the movies we're talking about are movies that I, you know, that I've loved watching. I'm going to scream the praise of the, you know. Uh, uh, this movie um, praise the glories of this movie shout it from the rafters I'm just a fan uh, Zombie by Fulci is uh, catch it on Shutter. catch it wherever you can it's a classic that's great I haven't seen uh, many Giallo uh, I'm still beginning to dip my toes into Italian horror and so uh, this might be one that I need to uh, to, to check out so uh, thanks for this recommendation the first film on my list is uh, a film called Blew My Mind 
by Lisa Bruhlman from 2017, and uh, it also is on Shutter. It's also playing on Amazon Prime and Canopy. Um, it is the story of Mia, a, a teenager who is moved to a new city with her family because of her uh, family's job change, and uh, she's been kind of the the good student, the good the good child all of her life and begins to uh, resent being uprooted from, from fam- from friends being uprooted from her life and uh, begins to be drawn to a, a group of uh, girls who are partiers, who are shoplifters, who skip school and in the midst of all this begins to undergo a transformation herself and uh, she begins to discover scales on her body and there are times that she can't breathe uh, air anymore and has to breathe water Um, and so uh, it's this really uh, intriguing look at uh, it's a coming of age story that is exploring using body horror to explore the changes of adolescence and uh, how incomprehensible that can all seem. I was really surprised by how much the film ended up leaning into the, the Mia's self-destructive behavior as a way of trying to cope with those changes. Uh, I think that that so many films would have tried to make Mia more likable or more um, more of a, a perfect victim or more of a, a nice character, but it it really lets her have rough edges, and uh, it it shows how isolated she is as this family moves into a new area, coping with the the being uprooted from uh, an entire. Uh, uh, safety net and and social circle. Um, I do think that uh, it's not a perfect film. I think that there are some some missed opportunities throughout, and I think the ending is maybe a little vaguer. I think that you get that sometimes with modern horror, where uh, uh, filmmakers want to leave you hanging and they don't aren't quite sure that they they know what they want to say but i do have to say that the imagery throughout the film is just stunning um and there is this um this ache this longing this this deep desire uh that is conveyed through the film about what it is to be to be lonely what it is to uh to to feel abandoned in the midst of of these changes that happen in our life and uh, i think it's really beautiful uh really disturbing the the body horror elements are incredibly um visceral and uh really disturbing at times and uh it's uh it's a it's a really compelling film that i think is uh well worth people's time to see you know, two of my favorite horror films um, of the last decade are Raw and The Lure. And I'm not sure that, I'm. you know, it sounds like there are elements from both, but I'm not trying to compare uh, this film that I haven't seen to either one of those. But if there, mm-hmm. e- if this movie is even half as engaging as, as, you know, the movies that it sounds a little bit like, it sounds like it's well worth checking out. 
Yeah, this actually has been compared to Raw. Um, I haven't seen Raw yet. That's one that has been on my list that I keep trying to track down. But uh, this has been compared to Raw. This, I think, has some elements of the lure. Uh, I love the lure. The lure is uh, holds a special place in my heart. Uh, it's not quite as bonkers and off the wall as the lure. Uh, there's no musical numbers. <laughs> there's no... Uh, there's no, uh, you know, vampire mermaid uh, heart eating that happens. But uh, but I think that it still, though, has, again, some of those the same emotional resonance that you get uh, that I think, um, again, you know, something that, you know, as I was doing my own kind of uh, personal uh, online film festival, I really wanted to seek out horror films by female filmmakers. Uh, because I think that uh, the experiences of uh, of women in the way they were approaching horror was just really interesting to me. And to see uh, Bruhlman's approach to adolescence and uh, the way she took coming of age and found things that were beautiful but also terrifying and horrifying in it, uh, I think is just really, really compelling. And... Uh, so I think it's a it's a really rich rich film that is is really interesting that grew on me the more I thought about it and the more I res- the more I uh contemplated it. So yeah, I think it's definitely worth catching. Oh, that's great. That's great. I mean, you and I could do an entire podcast episode and and maybe someday we should just about yeah. just about women in horror. I mean, to some extent yeah. women are the horror genre and you know, there you could write books, and I'm, I know that people have and dissertations on why that is. I, at the you know, one of the fundamental reasons why that is, I think people just have a difficult time empathizing with male characters in duress because there's a there's an aspect of us that see males as like action figures or something. I don't know. But it's almost like, hey, if you can't handle that guy that broke into your house, like you need to, you need to toughen up a little bit and like get a gun or something. <laughs> um, whereas, yeah. like with when a when a female, when a woman is, you know, the final girl, or one of my favorite horror films is The Descent, where it's the women that are the mm-hmm. action stars. When they're yeah. at risk, I feel like I feel their vulnerability. I'm rooting for them and I want them to be healthy and safe and, and all that in a way that I'm just not when it's Arnold or Sylvester Stallone. Like I just have a different relationship with um, maybe it's like my own feminine side. Like, I don't, I don't know the psychology of it, but there is something very interesting about the fact that while that is a fundamental aspect of filmmaking in horror, that it's been primarily men for so long. Yeah. And we see the flip side of it where many of the best horror films of the last decade or two have been directed by women. So I, yeah. I'm actually, I'm kicking myself a little bit that I didn't, I didn't pick something uh, directed by a woman, but I mean, interestingly enough, the movie that I picked for my second film takes directly addresses that issue head on and probably Mm. makes the wrong verdict. So I'm talking about Dario Argento's 1982 Giallo, probably my favorite Giallo that I've seen yet, Mm. Tenebrae. I I don't know if I pronounced that right. It might be Tenebrae. I don't know, but I'm just going to call it Tenebrae. And this is a wonderful, wonderful film. Um, You know, the storyline is something that's been done like a hundred times. 
you have your writer of crime or horror genre fiction or like your filmmaker in these genres and their art inspires real life criminal acts real life um you know imitating fiction from the technical perspective this is argento you were talking about earlier uh, in an earlier conversation we had about eliza hitman being in full possession of all of her talents tenebrae is argento in full possession of all his skills and tricks and for somebody who's a master of stylized violence it just doesn't get any better or any more stylized than this I know people sort of hate film criticism by analogy. So, uh, you know, I promise if you email me or send me a message, I'll give you your money back. Um, But this film (laughs) feels to me like Argento's vertigo in many ways. Uh, Mm. I think partly because there are at least a few shots that actually look like vertigo. But also, and here's where we connect it to what we were talking about women in film. This film also feels a little bit more, uh, feels a little bit like an auteur confession. Like, I can't help Mm. watching Vertigo, and I love Vertigo, and I love it more and more every time I watch it. But I can't help watching it without feeling a little uneasy that this is Hitchcock confessing to his sins. And yet Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here sort of embracing him while he may be out there mistreating some of his actresses like it's a very it's a very difficult emotional thing to navigate when i watch vertigo everybody's got to figure out how they how they navigate that with filmmakers that they love that maybe their own personal lives don't you know rise up to they're not perfect people or or far worse than that um everybody's got to navigate that but that's a movie where i constantly think that this is similar to me I think Ar- because Argento has his writer character being confronted by feminists, being confronted by critics about the violence in his books. And Argento, it, it feels like it's very, you know, he's being very open with what he's doing, which is he's engaging with the fact that he knows his films are perceived this way. They are actually doing this, it, it, you know. They are exploring horror tropes. There are a lot of women that are that are subjected to violence um, and are viewed, you know, uh, uh, in a hypersexualized fashion. And his Argento's reaction is kind of to lean in on it and to make it even more stylized and to make it even more sexualized. And while on an emotional level, it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable um, and you know, question the morality of what Argento was doing in the film. Part of that adds a little bit of fuel, a little bit of tension uh, to the film. And also, it's just really well done. Um, The Mm. architecture in this film, like that alone could justify, uh, you know, a podcast episode. Just talking about the look and the stylization and the, the the modernist architecture that's in the film. You know, this is for me the height of Argento. Uh, it's up there with Suspiria as, you know, probably one of his two best films that I've seen so far. And really, just for me, it's the best giallo I've ever seen. I mean, it's it feels like how do they even make giallo? I, I know the answer to this is probably yes. But it's like it feels like this is the last word on a genre that is just so rich in, you know, uh, uh, in, in films that, like I said, feel a little bit like comfort food, feel like something that I can revisit and... It's just, you know, you just plug in and you can just like check out and you're going to see some crazy stuff and listen to some awesome soundtracks. This film does have, it's not a Goblin soundtrack, I don't think, 
but it's like several of the members of Goblins. And this is j- yet mm-hmm. another tremendous soundtrack from Argento. Yeah, this, look, I really struck gold when I started revisiting Italian horror and Italian giallo after I sort of figured that I had, um, I'd sort of written it off or not even written it off. It's not that I disliked them, but I'd sort of figured out, I've been there, done that. Jumping back in with these two films right off the bat, I got so lucky because I'm just really impressed and drawn in and and want to explore um, both of these genres more. So, um, yeah, this is, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I think this is something you could define as like art house horror or. Um, yeah. But it certainly is the sort of, you know, even if it's not art house and even if it's not horror, this is certainly the sort of thing that my old art house theaters in Boston would have been playing at midnight. This is at the very least midnight yeah. art house. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, both of these films, Zombie and Tenebrae, I, you're, you're lucky when you get to see these for the first time. And I'm looking forward to seeing them for the second time. Well, that's great. That sounds like a really, uh, a really good recommendation. I, again, I've only seen a handful of, of Giallo films and I've seen a few uh, of the modern kind of riffs on Giallo. Uh, one I saw at the Seattle International Film Festival last year, uh, Knife Plus Heart, which was a really fascinating uh, kind of re-examination of the Giallo through a queer lens. And uh, it was uh really, really great. And I'm glad I had at least a little bit of a a grounding in Giallo because I don't know that I would have appreciated it at all if I didn't have that. Um, And so I think that it it made me really eager to at least explore a few more and to to have this recommendation from you as kind of one of the the better Giallo films makes me eager to to check this one out as well. So thanks for this one as well. Knife Plus Heart was uh, in my top 10 for 2019. Uh, I'm a a fan. That's right. Uh, Yeah, it's great. Tenebrae, I just have one last point. Tenebrae has bonus points because of the Black Christmas connections. Uh, John Saxon is in it, and there are certainly plenty of creepy phone calls. So. That's great. Uh, well, my final film to talk about today is uh, Blood Quantum, directed by Jeff Barnaby from 2019. And it was uh, essentially just released this year uh, and uh, was released exclusively on Shudder. Um, this is a first a Canadian First Nations film and is a uh, zombie apocalypse film about uh, a zombie uprising on a Canadian First Nations uh, reservation. And we discover that indigenous people are actually immune to contracting the zombie virus. Uh, and uh, the the survivors begin to take in white people into the reservation to protect them. And uh, there becomes a debate on whether or not they should protect these these white individuals or not because they could eventually become zombies and uh, threaten the safety of the reservation. And uh, it's a really, really sharp, really fun zombie film. The violence is over the top uh, at times. The, there are these great animated sequences that transition us from one moment to the next. It is a really uh, political film as well, and I think it's probably about as political a horror film as they come. And 
I think the thing that really struck me as I was watching it is that it is a film that um, it's it's more about the conversations that are happening within indigenous communities around the world. It's a really rich, really fun film. I love that uh, you know so many zombie films are rooted in the Western genre, Western siege narratives. Uh, and you know, so many Westerns uh, have this, this underlying racism. So many zombie films have that imagery baked into their subtext. And uh, I love that it takes that uh, genre and uh, flips it on its head and uh, becomes this really provocative statement and uh, has this incredible incredible conversation about uh, who is in, who is out, what what responsibility do uh, people who have been colonized have to protect the colonizers. Uh, the fact that you can, can have all of these conversations and have these political discussions and yet still make a compelling, fun, gory, and really delightful zombie film altogether, I think is uh, a really, really delightful, uh, delightful treat. Oh, man. Politics and the horror film. You know, it's it's one of the riches and one of the rewards of watching horror films is I think actually the politics is more laid bare. And it really gets a sense of like, what were people thinking at that time? And what were people wrestling with? Mm -hmm. And what were some of the assumptions? Pernicious, progressive, you know, I, I just did. I just discussed at least one film, which is pretty deeply regressive, I think. Um, mm -hmm. and yet mm -hmm. still is like, it's, you know, it's a, it, it was a terrific film to discover. Yeah. It's, uh, politics and horror. It's one of the things that actually adds to the richness of the genre. Yeah. I love that we have filmmakers now who are taking these genres and are exploring them through some other lenses. And, uh, again, to have a, uh, a first nations Canadian filmmaker take, the zombie genre and say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to play with this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to take the racist idea of blood quantum and I'm going to turn it on its head and I'm going to explore that myself and explore these issues of colonialism and just dig into it. I love that, that this filmmaker is trying to use horror to, uh, to make some political statements of his own. So I think it's great. Yeah. And, and, to your point, it, I feel like often it escalates and improves and just adds more just yeah. to the even. Obviously, I love the intellectual pleasures of um, the different layers in the horror films and other films that I love. But the primal pleasures, too, are just escalated that much more yeah. when it's, uh, you know, you're you're playing with the tropes and the things that you've come to expect sort of subconsciously from certain types of yeah. movies and then realizing like, whoa, that was that was a major blind spot that that's sort of what I expected in this movie. And yeah, yeah. that definitely adds to it. You know, somebody, obviously we talked about Ra, that's uh, Julia DeCour now. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't wait to see everything else she does, especially if it's, if it's like that. Karen Kusama is, you know, yeah. the destroyer for, we've got Noir November coming up. That's going to be wonderful yeah. to revisit. And I know she did a few horror films as well. And just, you know, on and on and on. There are so many examples of, of uh, people of color and, and women that have done amazing genre films. Yes, yes. Um, in the yeah. last couple of decades. So you pointed out a couple and, and uh, you know, we could, we, could, we could keep going on with this. There's so much, 
there's so much more to explore. Yeah, definitely. Well, hey, if you're looking for more horror films, there's four to catch this month on other streaming services. Uh, that's Zombie by Lucio Fulci, Blew My Mind by Lisa Bruhlman, Tenebrae by Dario Argento, and Blood Quantum by Jeff Barnaby. All of those are available on Shudder. John, as always, uh, this is a pleasure. I miss talking to you, so thank you for joining me for this grouping of episodes. Thank you so much. This has been fun. Thanks, Josh. Where can people find you today? Uh, where can people find you online? Yeah, so if people want to find me online, uh, find me in the Facebook groups, your Facebook group. Uh, gosh, Criterion Now, uh, Criterion Reflections, uh, Criterion Cast, uh, wherever. I'm, I'm, you know, any of the Criterion Facebook groups, I'm in it. <laughs> and I'm Jonathan James. And then also in Letterboxd, I'm also Jonathan James. Um, so you can find me there. And yeah, I love talking horror and uh, pretty much uh, almost all the other film genres as well awesome thank you again you can find criterion channel surfing at criterioncast.com and our website cinemacocktail.com and you can subscribe on apple podcasts stitcher spotify or wherever you get your podcasts you can also find the show on twitter instagram and facebook by searching for criterion channel surfing if you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at criterionchannelsurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of Criterion Cast a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com and support the work of CriterionCast at Patreon.com slash CriterionCast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener-supported, so please consider donating to the show at Patreon.com slash Josh Hornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show, and for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss in a special Patreon-only bonus episode. I'd like to continue to thank all of our regular Patreon supporters. Thank you so much. Your support really does mean so much. On the next episode of Criterion Channel Surfing, my guest and I will sit down to discuss November's new and expiring titles. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.